Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. I'm really excited about today's guest, Paul Edelman, who has his PhD in psychology from Harvard University, and he uses his expertise to navigate generational transition in leadership, ownership, wealth. He facilitates planning, problem-solving, decision-making, and moreover, conflict resolution. He has created structures and processes to guide individuals, businesses, and families in their growth and in their philanthropy. So welcome. Thank you very much, Diana. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Great. So let's start with the very beginning. Let's talk about the process of decision-making. Yes. So um, the clients that I work with tend to be people who are effective in their day-to-day lives. They're usually uh, pretty good at, at making decisions and solving the problems of their daily life. One of the things that makes them good in decision-making is that they tend to use models to help them in this process. The thing about using decision-making models is that oftentimes when we use them, we use them implicitly. That is to say, we might not even realize that we're using a model to make our decision. The other thing that happens is that we use them inconsistently. That is to say, we don't always use a model. Um, In general, decision-making tends to be more effective when we use appropriate models. Uh, So one thing that can be done to improve decision-making is to help people to be aware of when they're using models and to try to help them or encourage them to use models more often. Can you give me an example of a model that either works or doesn't work? I am now calling my experiences of decision-making thinking, what model did I use? And it is so implicit that I do not know. So give us an example. Sure, and I can tell you a story as well. Perfect. So a common model is the the so-called model of a zero-sum game. So this is the notion that one person's loss is another person's gain. And it's common in in negotiations that people approach things this way. It's not at all ideal, but it's it's certainly common. Uh, An alternative model might be a model of uh, collaborative decision-making. So in a a simple model of collaboration, collaborative decision-making might have three steps. You might say something like, step one, describe the situation. Step two, decide what the various parties involved want. Uh, What does each party want and what do they not want? What is it they're trying to avoid and what is it they're trying to accomplish? Uh, So, so, uh, and then finally, having gotten that information uh, out on the table, the the next step is, okay, so let's talk about it. How can we work out a solution that gets us each as much of what we want as possible? So the classic story that's told about this situation, different people tell it differently, is the one about the orange. 
So imagine, for example, a wealthy family, and there are two teenage daughters and a mother. The mother comes into the kitchen to find her two teenage daughters fighting over an orange. And she's had a bit of a bad day, or maybe the day before she attended a, a seminar um, where someone was talking about uh, uh, the challenges that wealthy families face, and they told the uh, oft-told story of the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves parable, and they cited some now perhaps debunked statistics about the relatively small percentage of families of wealth that make it to the third generation. So she's primed to be a little bit anxious here and not necessarily at her best. She walks into the situation, the two daughters are fighting over the orange, and she says, would you two girls please stop fighting over that orange. You know, you, you, you don't recognize how privileged you are. You know, you're being greedy. And if you don't stop fighting, I'm, I'm gonna ground you. Well, you could imagine the impact that that approach has on her relationship with each of her daughters and on the daughter's relationship with each other. Now, Imagine a different scenario. Suppose she comes in and she's feeling better about herself. She's feeling a little calmer. And at some level, she's got in mind a uh, model of collaborate, collaborative decision-making like the one we just uh, reviewed. She walks in and she says, you know, the model says assess the situation. So she says, okay, what's happening here, girls? They say, whoa, we're fighting over an orange. We both want this orange. And she says, okay, I get it. Um, now, step two, she's thinking uh, at some level. So uh, tell me, what is it you each want with this orange? Or if you had the orange, what would you do with it? Well, one daughter says, well, I'm trying to make orange juice. The other daughter says, I'm trying to bake a cake and the recipe calls for the zest of one orange. So at that point, the mother says, okay, let's talk about this. Girls, what thoughts do you have about how you can resolve this problem in, in, in a way where, where uh, that's good for both of you? So, you know, the, the, uh, the end of this, hap the happy ending to this story is that uh, they say, okay, well, you can have the inside and make your juice and I'll take the outside for my cake recipe. So um, if you think about the impact that this approach has on the relationship between the mother and each of her daughters, on their relationship to each other, and even more on their collective feelings of self-confidence about their ability to solve problems and make good decisions in the future, you see a huge contrast. I can see that clearly. The third alternative I can see in that exact same scenario is what I often encounter with families I work with, which is the mother would walk in, find the two daughters fighting, grab the orange, split it into two, and create the resolution. Yeah, so that, you know, this in the Bible, there's the classic story of uh, uh, the the two mothers fighting over a baby and they come to King Solomon the wise and uh, uh, Solomon sizes up the, the context and he says, okay, here's a solution. I'll cut the baby in half. Uh, of course, uh, 
the real mother of the baby says, oh no, let her, let her have it. Don't do that. <laughs> and That's so right. he's quickly identified what's going on. But um, in that case, they call him Solomon the Wise because he represents the expert. And what happens in that situation, when, when the expert imposes a solution on the participants, it reinforces a hierarchical relationship between the participants and the expert. And it does nothing to further their self-confidence in their own ability to solve problems uh, themselves in the future. I use four questions when I work with parents and these they go something like this. These aren't Passover four questions. The first question is, whose problem is it? Second question is, who grows if I solve the problem? The third question is, what do they gain if I stay out of it? And the fourth is, what will they gain if they resolve it? Yes, well, so that is, um, it sounds like an explicit model. Right. Uh, because you were able to articulate it to me. And, uh, you know, with respect to any given model, one question you can ask is, um, what is the context uh, for which this model is designed? And it sounds like it's a model that's designed uh, for, for uh, addressing contexts in which there's uh, some sort of shared decision-making challenge or, or some shared mm -hmm. problem to be okay. solved. And, uh, and then the, the next thing in analyzing a model from my point of view is to ask, what are the desired outcomes that this particular model is suited to helping to accomplish? Or on the flip side, what are the sort of uh, undesired outcomes that this model uh, will help you to avoid. And in, in the description you just gave, it sounds like this is a model that, that's uh, suited to advancing the desired outcome of helping people to feel more confident about their ability to solve problems and avoiding um, creating dependency, uh, avoiding stepping in and solving a problem for people when that would be counterproductive. At the same time, there may be situations where a third party's intervention is useful, helpful. And uh, so this model might help you to, to discern when those situations uh, exist. That makes complete sense. So there isn't one model that works in all scenarios. It would depend no. in part, I would gather, on the goals sought, correct? Yeah, exactly. So, so I, I have a four, a four uh, part kind of meta model that okay. I use in designing models and also in assessing the appropriateness of fit of, of uh, one or, you know, a, a, someone else's model, for example, or some model that I might be considering applying uh, irrespective of who came up with it. But the four steps are, one, analyze the situation or the context, you know, figure out what you're dealing with. Two, ask yourself, what is it you're trying to accomplish or avoid? And then three, ask yourself, what are the implications of that for, uh, for action? And in this case, the action is the choice of, of the model. So using, uh, I call this the co-impact model. So the CO is for context, uh, I'm sorry, the C is for context, the O is for outcomes, 
the IMP <laughs> uh, is for implications and the ACT comes from action. Uh, but in any case, uh, uh, using those, those, thinking those four steps, using this model uh, is helpful for evaluating other models or creating models and deciding when best to use them. That's great. That is great. So co-impact model, right? Yes. Is that what you call it? Good. I got it. So yeah, I struggled I for a switch. long time to come up with it. I know a, a catchy name. A cute name for it. Yeah. You know, that's that's one of the dilemmas all model builders face. <laughs> it's exactly right. To have to describe what you're doing and actually be catchy, memorable. That's a that's yeah, a skill in and of itself. Sometimes uh, one goes too far in the direction of finding a catchy name, and then it obscures the nature of the model itself. You know, it becomes sort of counterintuitive. Uh, Correct. Uh, so it's hard. Correct. So let's switch gears a little bit. I know you're involved in the Ultra High Net Worth Institute. What exactly yes. is that mission? So the mission of the high net, Ultra High Net Worth Institute is to serve as a kind of think tank for um, advancing the field of practice in relation to uh, meeting the needs of uh, ultra high net worth families. So the Institute is comprised of practitioners from a, a variety of relevant disciplines. So that includes um, wealth managers, it includes um, multifamily offices, it includes uh, law firms, uh, and uh, accounting firms or investment management firms, and uh, also uh, coaches and psychologists uh, who work with these families. There's also um, uh, a number of uh, families of wealth uh, who belong as well. Typically, these might be uh, uh, single family offices, for example, who would send a representative to the Institute to both contribute to the conversation and the learning and also to take back uh, what they learned from kind of the state of the art of uh, thought and practice in the field. Any real surprises for you? What have you learned that has surprised you? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, um, you know, the, the uh, Institute just published a white paper that was written by uh, four members of the Institute. Uh, um, including uh, Dennis Jaffe and Stacy Allred, who, who I'm most familiar with. The other two names are escaping me for the moment. So, uh, oh, Daniel Trimarkey uh, uh, and one other person who to whom I extend my apologies. Um, but uh, uh, this paper uh, takes a fresh look at advising families who are going through uh, transitions in leadership of the family business or the family enterprise. And uh, one of the findings that I found most significant, most useful in the paper uh, was the notion that there's often a lot of attention paid to the readiness of the so-called rising generation to assume positions of leadership and responsibility in the course of one of these trans transitions. So, so uh, sometimes they're asked to uh, complete uh, behavioral or psychological assessments, and uh, they're asked to demonstrate certain kinds of skills and experience and so forth. And uh, 
there's often a presumption that they're not quite ready yet, which begs the question of, you know, what would be a sign that they were ready to uh, uh, take on the next uh, level of leadership? And what would it take to prepare them for that? But the authors point out that in, in focusing the attention on the rising generation, what's often missed is the needs of the elder generation in making this transition, which is a very significant life transition for them. And so they point out that there's an emotional side to kind of uh, giving up the reins and transitioning into the unknown world of what comes after uh, working in the family business, and that the elder generation can benefit from support just as much as the, uh, the rising generation can. And so it's a kind of uh, plea or suggestion to advisors to pay more attention to those needs of the, the uh, elder generation and be sure to uh, uh, do what's possible to assist them in the transition as well as simply focusing on the rising generation. So that's a good example, I think, of, of uh, the kind of uh, cutting edge thinking that the Ultra High Net Worth Institute formed in order to uh, create and, and share. I mean, that, that makes intuitive sense to me that each generation would need a different kind of support, but each needed yes. the support, right? Yes, For like yes. transitions, yes. Yeah. So you do coach and facilitate and practice um, with families of ultra high net worth. What are some of the challenges that you've experienced? Do you feel compelled all the time to be brilliant when you're working with these groups? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this is, this is uh, you could call it the coach's dilemma because um, when we're brilliant, <laughs> that is to say, when we, let's say, offer advice, and someone takes our advice, we experience a transient sense of euphoria. <laughs> and if you think about other things that are associated with transient euphoria, the, the challenge is that the euphoria fades, uh, but it's such a, a, a positive experience that we're motivated to want to repeat it. And the more often we have that experience, the more we want to repeat it. And to some degree, the bigger dose we want. So, um, so this is true of all humans, including coaches and mentors as well. I, I um, have been thinking about the distinction between what makes a mentor and a coach in preparation for another podcast. And the mentor, you know, think of the word mental or mind, uh, the mentor, in a sense, is sharing the benefits of what's in their mind. So they share their experiences, their thoughts, they give advice. A coach, on the other hand, is trained, and this is not true of all coaches, because there are no requirements to become a coach to, to you know, hang up a shingle and say, I'm a coach. There is, however, a certification body or more than one body, but the, perhaps the best known is the International Coach Federation, which uh, uh, 
certifies coaches and has certain uh, ethical and standards as well as standards of practice. In the ICF training that you have to take and in the uh, exam you have to pass, it's required that you demonstrate uh, a kind of awareness of the uh, tendency to want to give advice and that you have enough self-control to avoid giving that advice, that is to say, to avoid trying to appear brilliant. And instead, you focus on helping the other person, the person being coached or the persons in the case of group, family or team coaching, to use their minds more effectively. So, um, so in situations where I'm coaching families of wealth, I recognize and try to monitor my own tendency to feel some anxiety about, you know, am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Can I show uh, my smarts to these people? And to say, okay, I recognize that I feel that way, but I've been trained not to act on that feeling. Instead, I'm going to do something. I'm going to keep in mind, what are my goals here? And what can I do to be effective in accomplishing those goals? so as to help the family or the individuals involved be effective in accomplishing their goals. So what that means in practice is I'll catch myself and instead of saying something brilliant, <laughs> uh, I'll say, uh, or trying to say something brilliant, I will instead uh, say, okay, what's the problem that they're so trying to solve here? What are the outcomes that they want? And what are the obstacles? What stands in the way of them accomplishing that? There are two things that most commonly stand in the way of families accomplishing their goals. One is unpleasant feelings. It's in the nature of humans that whenever we feel anxious, afraid, jealous, resentful, uh, you name the unpleasant feeling, that it has a disruptive effect on our ability to think clearly. One way that trained coaches recognize the presence of the disruptive effect of these feelings is when somebody says, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. Please tell me what to do. That is a kind of invitation that trained coaches um, recognize as being a sign of, of this sort of disruption. And what we have to do is avoid the temptation to tell other people what to do and instead ask ourselves, why are these otherwise smart, capable people feeling stuck and uh, uh, unable to think as clearly as they normally are in this particular situation? And what can I do to restore their capacity to think clearly? I like the ultimate goal, restoring somebody else's capacity to think clearly, right? Yes, yes. To regulate their nervous system so they're actually accessing the very wisdom they possess, not us. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You know, when I'm training other coaches, I, I teach them to imagine that there's something that looks like a, a heart monitor above the head of the person they're talking to. And there's kind of a baseline level on the monitor. And what they're looking for is, is dips in, in, in the level of, of thinking capacity or mental performance. When they notice a dip, you know, so they, 
the question is, what's the pattern and when do you see a break in pattern? When they see that dip or break in the pattern, they have to say to themselves, what happened immediately before that that's the most likely uh, cause of that dip? And then what can I do to restore the person to, um, to where they were before that happened? What are some of the signs of a dip when you're talking to somebody, coaching somebody? What are some of those signs? Yeah, so, the, you know, we cannot literally see into somebody's head. The thing that is easiest for us to observe is their speech. You know, this is one of the things that differentiates humans from other animals. But speech provides a, a window into what's happening in the mind. So uh, when people speak, speech has a certain quality that I refer to as the level of differentiation. Speech can be more or less differentiated. I'll give you an example. Suppose a friend goes to the movies and we say to them, uh, uh, tell me, what do you think of that movie? And they say, it was interesting. That is an undifferentiated response. It doesn't really tell us very much. It invites us to ask what I call a differentiating question. Uh, so if we really wanna know what our friend thought of the movie, we might say, oh, interesting. In what way? That question um, invites them to think a little deeper about this thing that for some reason they were having trouble thinking uh, about. And we could uh, generate some hypotheses about what that might have been. Yeah, so if a friend of mine says that the movie was interesting, the first hypothesis that I would entertain is that there was something about either the movie or the situation, the context in which I'm asking that question that is disrupting the friend or motivating them not to give more detail. Um, so uh, it might be that the movie contains some disturbing content. You know, it might've been a horror movie or, contain, or covered a topic that uh, was otherwise disturbing to them for some reason. Um, and so uh, it's possible that that's a reason why they're not giving more, me more information. If it was our 14 year old son who said uh, uh, the movie was interesting, uh, there's another reason why people might give an undifferentiated response. And, you know, trained interrogators are taught to recognize this when they're, let's say, interrogating a terrorist. Uh, if the terrorist is talking about things in relatively uh, high level of detail and suddenly their answers become much more vague or undifferentiated, you start to think, well, there's something that they're motivated to cover up. So if the 14 year old says the movie was interesting, you know, one tentative hypothesis might be, well, it was an R rated movie and they snuck in and they don't want to tell us exactly. about it. Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. They don't want to tell us about what they were thinking. It may not be that they're having trouble thinking about it. They may not wish to disclose their thoughts to us. Exactly. But the, the, the same thing happens in families, though, you know, to get away from the movie context. Um, so you say, you know, what's the trouble in this family? And somebody says, well, you know, it's my brother in law. You say, well, what does he say or do that is trouble? You say, they say, I don't know, he's just a jerk. 
<laughs> well, there's two things with that response. First of all, it's undifferentiated. Second of all, um, calling somebody a name like that, um, just like being brilliant, it has a similar effect. It produces a transient sense of euphoria. You know, we all love to think that we we're in the right. And so when we say it's not me, it's the other guy uh, and attach a, a strong word to that, um, we get that transient sense of euphoria. The, the problem is that most issues that exist in families, uh, you know, that are difficult, require ideally some sort of problem solving, collaborative problem solving and decision making. And if you think about um, the business of, of designating a bad guy or uh, placing blame or fault in the context of a situation in which the goal is collaborative problem solving, you can ask yourself, to what degree is naming a bad guy consistent with the goal of f promoting collaborative problem solving? And most people uh, who think about that question would, would certainly answer, not at all. Not at all. Right. <laughs> I like the designated bad guy, sort of like the designated hitter in baseball. This is the person who is the receptacle for all of the family ill. Let's talk about how he becomes that, right? Yeah, Diana, you put your finger on something very important. When you say receptacle for all the family ills, the person who becomes a designated bad guy oftentimes is expressing some thought or some feeling that's felt by every member of the family. But for one reason or another, they um, have a kind of uh, greater tendency to, to give voice to it or to, to express it in some way. And that in turn can make them a target. The hammer of truth, you know, just <laughs> hammer being operative because sometimes people are not necessarily gifted at revealing the unhealthy behavior they see in a family and the way they express it actually puts a target on their back. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example from, from a different context. Um, or, I mean, it could be a family context as well. I mean, imagine for example, a strategic planning session in a family business or any other business, and people are contemplating some new initiative. Now, every new initiative has both the potential for gain and some associated risk. And at some level, everyone in the family or in the management team is thinking about both sides of that question, you know, the gain side and the risk side. But one person may give voice to the risk. They may say, you know, if we do this, something bad could happen. What commonly happens in many situations is that person becomes the, the, the known as the naysayer. They say, mm -hmm. oh, you're Mr. Negativity. You know, why do you always bring out the negative? In fact, bringing out the negative is one important um, contribution to the process of effective decision making. But when, it, when it's localized in, in, a, in one person, it's often the case that people see that in terms of their personality or their character. They say, oh, you're negative. But uh, rather than viewing it as a function, which is uh, one component of effective uh, problem solving and decision making, you know, to explore the positive and the negative is uh, at a minimum part of what you want to do. 
Absolutely. Pros and cons. I mean, that's basic decision making. <laughs> have a, at least some analysis of what the cons of the risks are of any yeah. particular decision. Now, to go back to our original theme, having a decision making model that includes exploration of pros and cons is, uh, is good practice. And it's something we often do implicitly, uh, if not explicitly. But um, the nature of us as humans is that we, we, we sometimes don't use our models. We sometimes don't think conceptually about things. We, we're more likely to think in terms of, of personality and we're more likely to individualize things. Um, so we say, uh, oh, this person's uh, uh, a Pollyanna. They always see the positive or this person's a, a uh, uh, you know, a naysayer or, or uh, uh, they're the devil's advocate or whatever. And uh, uh, we don't see it more systemically in terms of what are the, the, the functions that contribute to uh, an effective decision-making process. That's great. That's great. So we have run out of time today. I really appreciate you taking this, Dr. Edelman. And if for our listeners, if you've enjoyed this episode, please like us on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.